It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. Before going to law school, my knowledge of domestic violence would best be described as academic. When I graduated from law school and became Kirk Nermy, attorney at law, my view of domestic violence was much more graphic. I saw firsthand the damage that these acts cause upon the lives of both the victim and the victimizer, as well as their families. Of course, one of my most prominent cases was the state of Arizona versus Jody Arias, a case with domestic violence overtones. When I wrote Trapped with Miss Arias, one of my hopes was that the lesson of how toxic relationships could end, tragic endings, would not get lost in the sensationalism around the case. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't think my words, the words I put in that book, would magically solve the problem of domestic violence. Frankly, no words alone are likely to accomplish this, the same being true for today's podcast. Yet, as I see it, conversations like these are far from an exercise in futility. First and foremost, because not having them would allow domestic violence issues to return to the realm of family business, wherein victims are virtually ignored and perpetrators face little consequence. Secondly, I think conversations like this are important because they can not only help to stem the tide of domestic violence, but they can help those whose lives have been affected by domestic violence by providing them the opportunity to heal. And I think today's conversation will do both. Because today I will ultimately be facilitating a conversation between two women that I adore and admire, one of whom you are very familiar with, Robin Cote. Hi, Robin. Hi, Kirk. Also known as the queen of the collective. And if you listen to the show at any time prior, you know that she is a domestic violence survivor who is brave enough and had the cathartic experience of detailing those traumatic events in her great book, Victim No More. The second is a longtime friend, someone I have known since a time many of you only know through TV. Yes, the 80s. (laughs) I met her when I was attending Bellevue Community College, now Bellevue College. I guess that sounds more prestigious. She was a teacher, and now her resume is a long one, one I'm not going to cover in this intro because I think her wisdom and practical knowledge as an expert will shine through as this show goes on. So welcome to my friend, domestic violence expert and podcast First timer here, Woo-hoo. Glenna Trout. Hi, Glenna. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Robin. Thank Hi. you. Thanks for being here with us. Pleasure. And Robin, I think the best place to begin because you've experienced so much is just talking about your experience as a domestic violence survivor, what you went through as a young woman, and just to kind of speak to that and, and, and move forward from there. You know, even all these years later, sometimes it's hard to talk about, but it gets easier. It gets easier every time you tell a story. And for me, my first incidents with domestic violence came by way of the guy that I met when I was 13 years old. Uh, This started very, very young for me. And I've often said this, and it's taken me many years to actually accept this. If I had the right parental units at home, 
I would never have met this gentleman because I met him from a CB radio. I talked on a CB radio when I was a young kid and just, I had talked to this guy maybe a couple of times. His name was Mike, uh, Midnight Dreamer is what he went by. And one day I get up to go to school, 13 year old girl walks out the front door and this guy scares the living hell out of me. He's got a rose in his mouth and he says, good morning, sunshine. Good morning, honey. How are you? And I'm just like freaking out because I didn't see him sitting there. I heard the voice with my back turned and I turn around and see this guy. And you know, at that point, um, I'm a 13 year old girl that hasn't really had much parental guidance from the age of eight, trying to figure out the world. And it's not, I say this often, I don't blame my parents for certain things because I understand now as an adult that a lot of what they brought into this life with me as their daughter a lot of it was their childhood and what they were not given so it was just something that was transferred down the line it kept going on and on and this guy pretty much became my boyfriend within a short amount of time and you know what 13 year old girl wants to have sex with a guy who's 18 it scared the living daylights out of me and I broke up with him because of that. I wouldn't, I didn't want to do that. But within a year I ended up going by his house because his house was on the way to my school. And, you know, I never thought about this until later in my years, but him tracking me down at my house over a CB signal and an antenna, it's like he was grooming me. He was searching for somebody to get involved with. And you know, I ended up in a relationship with this man going into my, my teenage years. My, I was 15 when we had our first sexual encounter, and I didn't know what I was doing. But throughout this whole time of going to school, you know, it was, you can't wear this. You can't be with your friends. Um, you know, everyone in my family was so fooled by him that eventually my parents let him move in with us. And he ended up staying, my parents had turned the garage of the house into an extra room, so he shared that room with my older brother. So I had an older brother and a set of parents in the house and my boyfriend, who was five years older than me, so 15, 20, he's sneaking in my room every night having sex with me. And Can, can, I, can, sure. I, can I interrupt? Because yeah. I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to Glenna speak to, and she probably heard the same things I do. Feel free to interrupt any time, Glenna, okay, too. That's your you. job as a co-host. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think the age would probably be unusual, obviously, right? And mm-hmm. we consider that kind of sexual behavior, criminal, predatory, um, sex offender type behavior. Stalking. Mm-hmm. But but w- what what really hit me with that is the grooming behavior and the onset of control really easy to the relationship. So... What I was hoping you could do is speak to what you heard there and how and the commonality of what this is, because I think one of the great parts about this conversation is there might be people out there now who are where where Robin was. I mean, not at her age, but in that stage of the relationship, Mm -hmm. because to me, the biggest thing is get out. Right. right? And and both parties, really, ultimately, because I don't put the blame on what's traditionally the victim or the woman. No, it's toxic regardless. Bo- bo- both mm-hmm. both parties need to step away, right? Mm-hmm. And and at this tender age, it, it wasn't something that I would expect Robin to do or anything. But I'd like you to talk to just about that grooming and the control that you see, see so far in Robin's story. Well, one thing is they select their victim. 
and uh, often they select someone who they know are going to be easily groomed, or sometimes they will select someone who's very independent so they can break down that independence. But in most cases, and teen dating violence is a huge issue that's along with the domestic violence, and we need to be obviously embracing that at every age. But it was the grooming. It was the fact that he immediately started telling you what you could do, who you could hang out to. So it's that element of control. Had your family not been supportive, he would have been isolating you away from the family. Okay, well, i got to stop you. My family was not supportive. Okay. That's the problem. They moved him in. Well, there's even more to it. The first time he hit me, this will tell you that my family is not supportive. The first time he hit me, I was 15 years old. We were driving down a street at about 35 miles an hour. I mentioned to him that my two girlfriends from school wanted to go roller skating and had invited me out that Saturday to go skating at the park down the street from our house. He was livid. Mm -hmm. And he said, absolutely fucking not. And I said, why can't I do that? These are my friends. I got slapped across the face while he was driving this car down the road, and I was stunned. That was the first time he hit me. I jumped out of a moving car, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how long I was standing there on that corner. I was just in this, I was dazed. And then all of a sudden the car comes back. My mom gets out of the car. I tell her what just happened. And she tells me to get back in that car, stop acting like a child, and right. go home. And you can see this still affects me right. all and these years later. When I said supportive, I meant they were supportive of him. Of him, yes. Had they not been supportive of him, he would have been bringing you away from your family. So the idea is the isolation, the right. control, financial. The, the abuse happens on every level. Right. So usually long before the first physical act of violence, which is what most of us recognize as domestic violence, there's all the other forms of violence. And the sexual violence is huge. Obviously, underage, that's pedophilia. I mean, that's yeah. like rape of a child. There's all kinds of other crimes being occurred in there. But even whatever the age, it's, it's the sexual abuse. If you don't have sex with me, I'm going to have sex with your girlfriend. You know, and there's all kinds of those threats. Or someone else is a better lay than well, you are. The worst part, he used to tell me it was emotional blackmail. And I could, right. I could still hear the words. It's like... Mm. You're my girlfriend. If you don't have sex with me, I'm not going to be your boyfriend anymore. I'm not going to love you. And right. this is coming from someone who understands it now as an adult that I was so love starved. Yes. Because mm-hmm. my family did mm-hmm. not give that to me. Right. My mom had such a need to fill this void in her life because her first daughter she gave away. Mm-hmm. So she had this void within her to have babies, babies, mm-hmm. babies. Mm-hmm. So when we reached a certain age, the parental support was no longer there mm-hmm. emotionally. It was mom had to start babysitting other kids, you know, other people's babies in order to fulfill that need within mm-hmm. herself. And I didn't have that. I didn't right. have that love that I needed so bad. So unfortunately, I fell into that pattern of seeking that love from a not so good source. And at 13, most teenage girls really want to have that boyfriend and older boyfriends look really cool. So you got a lot of street cred, you got a lot of mileage with your friends and not understanding abuse, domestic violence or all the different layers and the psychological effect that stays with you forever, no mm-hmm. matter what kind of, the emotional scars are the deepest. And, the and I don't know that age is necessarily the definitive no, issue, not. right? Because it is that... Uh, desire for attachment, that desire for love, that keeps, for attention. That Absolutely. Keeps, I mean, we're, as as we're speaking now on October twenty second, <laughs> where you know they're they're dredging the Florida swamps to see if Brian, Brian Laundry's that's Brian Laundry's body, and right. Gabby Petito's twenty two years old, 22. right? Yeah. And so it is something that 
falls along the, the spectrum Always, of any age. And they started dating in high school, too. So yeah. the teen dating violence goes into domestic violence. And, you know, that we do so much victim blaming, like from the very get-go. And still, with all we know, all the years we've been trying to raise awareness and prevention of domestic violence, we still do a lot of victim blaming. And it really needs to be, you know, holding perpetrators accountable. But it's not just perpetrators. It's each and every one of us. Like humor is used as abuse dressed up in comfortable clothes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the music we have, you know, through the years, Stand By Your Man, you know, from that point on, it's all encouraging women to stay in the abusive situation because you can change your partner. Or men, I know, they're in abusive situations. As a victim, it's your responsibility to change your partner. You're everything to them. If you leave them, they fall apart. So um, we've worked so many times with victims of domestic violence of many ages. And we talk about people reaching their potential is an individual choice. You cannot help your partner reach his or her you know, potential unless they want to. In most cases of abuse, they never want to because they have what they have already want. And the meaning most, their partner, the, right? Meaning the at the, their the charade, yes. Mm-hmm. Not the love, not the fulfillment, not not the depth, but they have the trappings of. And so, the time that women, especially, are most at risk of dying is when they're leaving the department, uh, the relationship, or after they have already left. And so, so many people still say, "Well, just leave, just get out of there, like break up with them." It doesn't work. You know, there has to be a whole surround. When I was working with the prosecutor's office, you know, they'd say, well, the women have to leave their husband, their partner to protect the kids. It's not that easy. No, because then they get unsupervised visitation of the kids or the women are then homeless. And then what do you do with the kids? So it's it's not just an one issue. It's on every level of society issue. We had a case where I walked out of the police station and a woman was hiding in the bushes and she was, you know, police come over. And when I went over, she said, my husband's going to try and find me. I'm leaving the state. It's taken me all these years to save up enough money to buy gas to get to my parents' mm-hmm. place in the East Coast. And she said, just don't let him put out an attempt to locate on the car. I just need to get that far away. And she's terrified. But every time she saved money, he'd take it away. And they were wealthy. This is Bellevue. They yeah. were wealthy. And so it's no one could understand, well, why didn't she just get on a plane and fly? So you have to understand all the things, as you do, Robin, that goes on behind that, the terror, the it's threats, mental the warfare. promises. It's and, constant mental warfare. And I live with that. You know, I, I go back to to the time where, you know, I I came to the point where I almost killed him. Mm-hmm. And, and I in, in a moment, in a mm-hmm. moment, I could have poisoned him. But then I thought about this, you know, what am I going to do if I do this? Then my son's going to be without both of us. Mm-hmm. And he scared the shit out of me just hearing that voice coming down the hallway. And it woke me up from that. But, you know, it took something so drastic like him finally drawing my blood for me to strike back and to live with the threat every day. And this is a guy who's five foot seven. Mm -hmm. I'm five foot nine and Mm -hmm. I'm no little wallflower. But yet the thought and the threats of look at those two rifles on the wall. Mm -hmm. If you say anything to anybody, I'm going to shoot our son, make you watch, and then I'm going to shoot you. Those psychological warfare threats kept mm-hmm. me in such a bad place. Absolutely. And you, I couldn't even tell my parents that I was pregnant with my second child mm-hmm. because of those threats every day. I had mm-hmm. nobody to go to, and I had mm-hmm. no friends anymore because I was separated from them. Absolutely. And we lived like 10 miles away from my parents. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, even the fact that I could once in a while take the car and go get my son if he's spending the weekend with grandma and grandpa, but it was very rare. He always had to be with me 
And though I remember this part so bad. He did not want to get out of bed one Sunday to go pick up my son. My car, my automatic car was down. I didn't know how to drive a stick. I was what, 18? And I, you know, here I am going to pick up my son, grinding gears for 10 miles mm-hmm. in that car. And I learned how to drive a stick that day, but Mm -hmm. it scared the hell out of me. I was like, well, wait a minute. You don't want to get up to go pick up the kid. Mm -hmm. And you're still in in the prisoner mindset because that's not something he would ever let you do to have Mm -hmm. that kind of freedom to drive the car by yourself. I mean, hell in high school, and I've told this story so many times, but in high school, I had to change my outfits. I could no longer wear what I normally wear to school. And it wasn't just what he said I couldn't wear, but it got to the point what, what I couldn't wear wasn't comfortable to wear because I had to walk six miles to my school. Mm -hmm. He would not let me get on the school bus and ride with other kids my age. I had to walk or get a ride from him if he wasn't working and he was available. That's that's how screwed up this is because it's a it's a game of psychological warfare and, and social isolation yes. and it's crazy making because what a lot of people don't understand is there'd be times where there's a win back behavior where he'd be so charming and he'd be the man you fell in love with and he'd be the one that promised everything and you'd believe it and then when it got to the point you didn't believe it it was too risky to try and leave the relationship yeah and so it's the crazy making instead of being on terra firma you're always walking on quicksand or walking on eggshells is yeah. often how it's described. And there's no way to get your sense of reality because you're trying to keep the peace. You're trying not to upset things. But there's no way of ever knowing who you are yourself, your own wants, needs, and desires because they're not allowed to exist. No, they're not. And that was something that went on in our house every single day. You know, after being married, he made sure that obey was in the vows. And he made sure that I obeyed everything he said. And I even got to a point where, you know, I was pretty fresh in my radio career having already had, what, six years behind my my belt in my career, and he didn't want me being there. He didn't want me being present as, you know, he said, well, no fucking wife of mine is going to be a celebrity and be on the radio and have everybody know who she is. Don't outshine me. Yeah, don't Mm -hmm. outshine me. And, you know, it just, it never made sense to me a lot of things that happened. And here's something even weird. I'm just going to bring this up now because it's in my brain, but my father died earlier this year, and... Last year, we kind of got into an argument about all this because my mother wanted to know where she was when I was raped. And I said, you were sitting on the couch and dad refused to call the police. And she she still can't, you know, she's in denial with everything. Mm-hmm. But my father brought this up, which I thought was the strangest thing. He said to me that he let Mike move in with him because he was afraid Mike would call the police on him. And I'm like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? You've let this predator move in to your home and do this to your underage daughter and even even the day when my parents were gone and I was home from high school he brought me home Mike did he pulled out a 22 pistol I was laying in my bed we were talking and out of nowhere he pulls this 22 pistol out of out of his waistband and he puts it right to my head I don't remember what he said but I just remember something about killing me and I'm like, okay, this is a red flag. Why am I not paying attention to this? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go to mom and dad because this was probably a month after he slapped my face in the car and she mm-hmm. told me to get the fuck home, stop acting like a child. So mm-hmm. here I am. I'm supposed to be safe in this environment. Mm-hmm. And my own parents are not allowing me to have a voice. They're silencing me, their child. Mm-hmm. Who, 
I'm not making this shit up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had the red mark on my face where he slapped me mm-hmm. and she saw that, but yet that wasn't definitive enough for her to be mama bear and say, oh no, 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 no. We got to protect my daughter. Were they afraid of him? You know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think they were just non-existent mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. I think it was just easier to ignore. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there's been a lot of years where domestic violence wasn't ever taken super seriously either. Right. And again, if it's your fault, you just do something to fix it. You know, that's that whole understanding of the imbalance of power. So people would look at his size and your size and they'd say, of course, you can defend yourself. But the gun is a great equalizer. There was a case where, you know, a couple were happily engaged, happily got married, huge marriage, lots of people there. It's happened more than once, obviously. And um, at, during the honeymoon, the husband pulled the gun, put it to her head and said, you will do everything I want you to do exactly as I say. You will never embarrass me or a bullet is cheaper than a divorce. So do you think... Without any prior... Without any prior lead up or anything. And so, but the whole thing is, then is she a victim of domestic violence because they go on to have a, what looks like a beautiful relationship? Well, of course, because she's never herself. But I guess what I'm curious about that too, and and this is when we talk about the relationships and, and separating, do you think that there were really instances of control of isolation that made him feel confident that he could get away with doing that? Probably, but it was so subtle and it was so like culturally, you know, you uh, especially before women independence and start, yeah. things started coming in. Absolutely. And then there's an expectation within certain religions, certain cultures, certain uh, parts of our society of, of the pecking order or different things. And our laws, you know, back in the 70s, I think 79 was the first year we had a law that even mentioned domestic violence. And in Washington State, it was our 1099 law. But it, it, then it wasn't enforced. And so we had to work really hard to start looking at each call. Had to be, was it domestic violence related or not? If it was domestic violence related, we as police officers had to write reports. And a lot of police didn't want to write reports. So they wouldn't put it that it was DV related. And just like in this recent case... It would be separate the parties, let them calm down, and then get on with it. And so so much of our training in the last many years has been to know, recognize the, the difference, the power and control. Separation doesn't calm, you know, cure the problem. So I'm thinking we just need to do more training with every level of our in law enforcement, uh, you know, schools, teachers, everyone to make them aware still to this day. Yeah, and we, we talked about that when, when before we came here about mm. this idea that you know, as much as there has been progress in that regard, we see a interview video off the body cam of right. Gabby Petito, and you and I could see probably a dozen or more signs Absolutely. of control and mm-hmm. things like that just in a few minutes. When the victims often think they're crazy. I mean, they, and yeah. when you've been together well, that period of you're time. You're told you're crazy. Yeah. They tell and you, you act you're the, crazy. Yeah, they, <laughs> it's, you're being gaslit. Absolutely. But you don't know that Every the current day. time, that's what's going mm-hmm. on. You think, you get to the point in your own mind where you think you are crazy because it's like, if if no one else is seeing this, mm-hmm. then I must be imagining it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just get into a pattern of existence. Mm-hmm. You ignore everything. Mm-hmm. And even seeing Gabby, I mean, at first, you don't get the full vision of everything until you actually go back and watch the other camera view and the whole entire interview. Right. Because the media skewed it to a certain amount at first. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, okay, she, you know, she might have been the aggressor. But the whole idea behind that, I mean, 
I'm sitting here thinking when they found her body, and I know this is going to sound really bad, but as a survivor, I was thinking, God forbid, I hope to God it's blunt force trauma Mm. because that's almost immediate. Mm -hmm. And to sit back and to think about strangulation, it could take up to three minutes Mm -hmm. to kill somebody by strangling them. And it probably wasn't the first, like, I'm not going to talk about that case because I don't know anything about it except what I read in the paper. But uh, it used to be that when people would choke a victim, it was called just, um, you know, choking. It wasn't called, it wasn't a felony. And then it took a lot of doctors and, and training to say, you're within seconds of dying. And so then now it's attempted murder. Now it's a felony. Now that's one of the really high risk factors in domestic violence, where before just throttling was what they called mm-hmm. it. So sounded like you were just kind of slapping or pushing. So we talked about the progression of violence. Well, you never know what the escalation rate is. So any form of abuse is unacceptable, and they're all red flags. And you don't, like, they want us to make checklists when we were doing the training and training the trainers. You know, give me a checklist, and if I hit three of these boxes, then this is what we do. Well, domestic violence is a flowing, you know, you, mm-hmm. some days you felt really safe with Mike. Other days you knew. I mean, like in a moment when you have the win-back behavior, or mm-hmm. he's great with your kids. or He never did that. He, oh, he didn't. He, he, he never didn't did. To. He, okay. was, he was not a good father to my son. Okay. And, and I only found this out because I was actually allowed to go work on a movie set. And I worked on a movie called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And I was gone for three nights from seven at night till seven in the morning because I made good money doing that. Mm-hmm. So he, Which al- he took. <laughs> well, yeah. And he allowed me to do that. But when I would come home, I would find and he'd be like ready to go to work. He'd leave. And I'd go get my son out of the crib. And this kid is just covered in shit and piss. I mean, in mm-hmm. rashes. Mm-hmm. He never really took that role as a parent seriously. Mm-hmm. And then I come to find out my third day when I come home for breakfast, this kid is sitting in his little, you know, the little chairs that scoot around. He's sitting in that with an open can of baked beans. And I'm sitting here going, okay, this kid's not even, you know, a year and a half old. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting in this little chair eating baked beans out of a can Mm -hmm. for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize what was going on but there was so much neglect Mm -hmm. and that even went further when you know after the divorce and he had the custodial visits with the next girlfriend because she couldn't have kids and he was doing things to neglect my son as well and I the doctor was going to send called CPS on me right and I had to get in his face and said look here he just went to visitation with his father you want to call CPS on someone do it on him there's still that social double standard yes you know that no matter what it's still the mom who's supposed to be the nurturer the caretaker no matter what and i love you know when it's a really equal relationship parenting relationship when the school calls the mom and she's called the dad i've got a meeting today and the dad will come away you know because they have that understanding there's still it's still so few in any Mm -hmm. incidents i'm aware of but they use kids as weapons and and in many ways many forms uh sometimes they will win the child over like, you'll love me more than you'll love your mother who's being abused. So, you know, for everyone that's out there listening, there's no right formula as to if it's this, this, and this, it's domestic abuse. If you're having any of your freedoms taken away, if you're being controlled, if you're being isolated. So we talk about the emotional abuse, the financial abuse, the um, physical abuse, it's the obvious abuse. The sexual abuse, and this, um, this, I know there's so many other... Psychological is the worst. It's the deepest ones. Yeah. Let me ask you about that, because one of the things I think you said earlier is very important, not victim blaming. Right. 
But we also traditionally tend to, when we talk about all these things, all these red flags, those red flags are flags that we we put the burden on the victim to know. Mm-hmm, right. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how do you get around that in the sense that to some degree you want the victim to recognize the signs of their own abuse in order to stop it, if that makes sense. Right. I'm probably saying that very inartfully, but... No, it's it's all raising education. And like some women will not leave the relationship until they realize it is affecting their children. And so once they realize the children are, they'll say many times, like, but the kids don't know. It's not affecting the kids, but it obviously is. Any child that witnesses it anywhere in the household are aware, and they know, and they're scarred. It teaches them that that cycle's okay for them to repeat as they become adults. Although I have to say there's some very impressive men that have used that as a way they're not going to be. Right. And then they are really out there educating others. But there's some really great programs out. So... It's not just the women recognize it. It's when they ask for help. On average, and I might be a few years out of date on this, but we used to do the teaching. On average, a woman will leave a relationship seven times and return to break free. Each time she's getting a little bit stronger, she's learning what her resources are. It shouldn't take seven times leaving before she knows and has access to the resources. They know the red flags, maybe not when they're first in the relationship, because every one of them want to be loved. They want to, you know, and if you're socialized to be a a mother, father, and kids and happily ever after, it's still the burden very much on females through our social, our laws, the interpretation of laws that you would know very well. But it's just education. It's programs like this, talking about it. There's a national domestic violence hotline. If anyone needs that number, we have it here. But... There's now I see a lot of the um, punk no um, music artists that are starting to talk about they're singing songs about it that are healthy relationships about healthy men. I mean I'm really excited to some of the country western music they're talking about healthy men women relationships and yeah. it's at every level of our society and I think as police officers we have to have the training we have to have the recognition everyone has to have accountability so we do talk about accountability for perpetrators. We started a program in the early 80s. Um, it was a stipulated order of continuance program. And because so many of the men needed to not have an arrest record to keep their security clearances or their high-paying jobs or their reputation, we offered it you know, we worked with the judges, and they were very reluctant. But finally, when we made a, an arrest that was a domestic violence-related, they would remain in custody until the hearing. At the hearing... The victim would be talking to uh, victim advocates, and the perpetrator would be talking to probation. They would be offered a one-year education program, and they had to stipulate that if the judge read the report, the police report, they would make an assumption of guilt. If they completed that program successfully, like, and, and we had yeah. a lot of hoops they had to jump through, they had to be attentive participant and that type of thing, then there wouldn't be a conviction. So they could keep their security clearance and reputation. There'd still be the arrest. But all that time, there was a lot of support for the women and the children. And it took us a while before we started having support for male victims as well, because we were still in denial that there were male victims. But everything, every place has to start. So any place you would have gone, Robin, you would have had to find your own resources, your own everything. Right. And, not have, and so now we're getting better 
and certain places, San Diego had an extending program where they did that whole one-stop services, and that's what we need to do. So even if they knew the red flags, it's how do you detach from yes. this safely? And and how do we stop this? I mean, because you know, believe it or not, and you know, when I did domestic violence cases, there were a fair amount of perpetrators that didn't want to be absolutely where they are. Mm-hmm. And and we go back to modeling, right? Absolutely. I mean, we go back to mm-hmm. modeling. They don't want to be that. They mm-hmm. don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, men are traditionally taught to contain their feelings, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Unless it's anger or happy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Robin's abuser it probably had some abuse of his own. I don't know if you're aware of that. Or, well, you know. he grew up in an alcoholic home, yeah. mm-hmm. so I'm not exactly sure. He was sent here to live as a teenager with his grandparents, mm-hmm. and I don't know what extent the physical abuse could have been in that household, mm-hmm. but it was something that was never talked about. Mm-hmm. And the when you talk about the anger, mm-hmm. There's not a photograph that he ever took around us, not even during like Christmas mm-hmm. or my son's birthday. There was no smiles ever. And mm-hmm. I didn't see those signs until after the fact, of course. And right. you're going back and you're going to get rid of everything because you don't want this shit around you. Because you're trying to survive when you're there. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. But he never smiled ever. Mm-hmm. Never, ever, ever. So like... Perpetrators, like every other category of crime, run the gamut. And so many of them are reactionary. And so I know in a lot of the perpetrator, the anger anger management is not appropriate as a sole treatment or things for domestic violence. But that's one of the tools, one of several. So when the judges say, well, I'm going to send you anger management, good beginning. But, you know, let's get a whole bunch more in there. But the, like we're talking about women or victims knowing the red flags, men or anyone abusive have to know that too. And so part of it is like what's the physiological buildup of your body of when you're getting angry. You can choose your reaction. You can choose yes. your thoughts. You can choose. It might not happen overnight, but you can be conscious of it and make all kinds of huge choices. So some people really do want to change, and they work with it. And a lot of them then become involved in working with other perpetrators, like the drug addicts that are recovered, and then they go back because you can't bullshit a bullshitter kind yeah. of right, right. And and so we've got some really great people on board and doing some lovely things, but you have others that are just going to game the system, yeah. and that's when we have to come back and have accountability at every stage. Because I think that's important. Because if we talk about red flags. And we only put the onus on the victim. Yeah, exactly. Then, then to some extent, we're victim blaming. And I think about from a, from a lawyer standpoint, if you know, uh, not that I know more than that's in the news about Brian Laundry, but my guess is, if somebody like that was coming to my office, there would be deep regret over their actions mm-hmm, because they mm-hmm. they are throwing their life away. Mm-hmm. Most of them would not. There might be some that would say, yeah, that she deserved it, and blah, 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 blah. But most would regret their actions because it wasn't necessarily a premeditated, you know, a strangulation, a, is, a strangulation is less likely to be premeditated than somebody who has a gun, right? It's more of an emotional upwind. Yeah, I, I'd have to know more facts. Yeah, the you're right, and, but I'm, I'm saying in and, general. Yeah, but there's so many cases that we don't read about in the press. Yeah, at, you're right. Always, and, and there's so many things that we don't give as much attention to because it might happen in an ethnic minority yes. family. Or we don't Very look true. in because of there's religious beliefs that are different than, than the community and things. And there's no excuse for abuse in any level, any space, any place. And there needs to be resources 
for the victims and their children and for perpetrators. And sometimes the accountability is jail. Sometimes it can be an option to change your behavior, but they have to engage. No one can make you change. We can only change ourselves. And we have to work really hard on changing self and being a good role model. And a lot of these people didn't have good role models, but that doesn't mean they're stuck being the way they are. So but if it, it works for them, they're not going to change. So if there was somebody out there, who uh, a victimizer, perpetrator, who said, I want to change my behavior, I want to, where would they go? Um, I'd, I can tell you in Washington State, and I can tell you in the United okay. Kingdom, but um, basically there are counselors that will work with you on your behavior. First thing they have to do is start learning like respect for self and others. Right. They need to do like learn about their reactionary anger. Uh, they have to take full responsibility for themselves, which is often the hardest one for yeah. someone who's abused someone else, um, that, that they have to be fully accountable and present. And they need to sign up for the long term to whatever re-education program. It's not a two-month fix. It's not an overnight fix. It's, it's not even the one-year fix from the definition yeah. of our program. It has to be several. And then they have to get involved. And I tell every one of them, go to work in a women's shelter. Go to work, I mean, obviously within yeah. reason, but volunteer and start working with kids and start seeing their side of it. But then a lot of them will have to go through and live through what their childhood was yeah. and fix those wounds as well. Yeah, they have to go back and, and look inside the inner child and mm -hmm. figure out mm -hmm. where. Because a lot of times I've seen working with victims of abuse and the perpetrators in my past 20, 30 years of doing this as a victim's advocate, I've learned that it is a process that continues and until you break the cycle, mm -hmm. it's going to continue. And until you take responsibility, whatever happens to us as children, that's not on us. Mm -hmm. But as we become adults, we have to figure out how to navigate life regardless if we have that support system or not. So what I was taught is to look for the gifts in the garbage. Yes. And the gifts in the garbage for those of us that grew up in abusive homes is we're very strong. We recognize the abuse sooner. We know we don't want to be like that. So some of the biggest, greatest gifts we can get from parents is, you role model for me what I do not want to be like. Mm -hmm. Instead of, oh man, I'm just going to repeat all of these horrible things and have a really unhappy life forever after. But it's personal responsibility. And yeah. then it's a community at large, each and individual one of us, our neighbors, our friends, our church, or whatever, that has to hold each one of us accountable. And I think that's important, too, because when we talk about what's acceptable socially, right? Yes. That lines, men have to be able to draw lines, not only for themselves, but for other people. It has to come to back accept to that kind basic, of, basic respect. Yeah. And, and, and then with this country becoming so polarized, respect and treating each other with some kind of dignity is off the table anyway. But even before this like breakdown in our humanity, I, I really think that we were starting to look at why aren't we respecting women to the same degree we're respecting men. And that's like socially all the way across the board. Why is there a pecking order, children at the bottom, then the women, then the men? You know, this type of thing. It's just culturally through. The, but we can change all that. And we change all that through public education, through your talk program. Thank you, Robin. Through, you know, the music, through the films, through, yeah. you know, just social media. And, and social media can be such a great gift. And it's also a huge curse. Mm -hmm. And how do we start balancing this? And why, why are we playing to the people's worst 
you know, impulses rather than saying, let's share the respect. Let's, I demand respect. Let's all demand respect. And I talk about this quite often that I'm, I'm sure the number hasn't changed, but one in three women, one in seven men have experienced some form of domestic abuse, emotional, sexual, whatever the case may be. And a lot of times the, the male victims that I've worked with, they're taught not to share their feelings, as Kirk was saying. We've had shows about this before. And a lot of times you're supposed to just suck it up, but don't hit her back. Mm-hmm. And the thing of it is... Or hit back in certain yeah, same-sex relationships. It, yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's even mm-hmm. worse sometimes in same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. I had a, a male couple that was together and... I mean, they literally beat the shit out of one another, mm-hmm. and it was one was defending himself, and and it was just you know it's trying to get them away from that scenario. And mm-hmm. when I talk to the men, I tell them, look, this does not make you a wussy. Okay, mm-hmm. you need to understand that you do not deserve right. to be belittled. Mm-hmm. You do not deserve to be punched and hit. Yeah, but I love her, and the sex is great. Oh, let me tell you something, honey. One day you may come home and that sex may end up with your throat slit. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to really think. And I know that's drastic, but if he's sitting there taking the abuse day after day and, and her screaming at him constantly, that's not going to solve the problem. And, and doing this in front of your children is just teaching them to be okay with it when it happens to them. And mm-hmm. in my household, my mother did everything my father said. Mm-hmm. And I never knew he only hit her one time. And she called the cops and he hid in the backyard. But I mean, this is something that today I still see, even though he's been dead, I still see her living in that victim mentality. Mm -hmm. Even though she's got her freedom and she can do what she wants, she chooses to stay in the victim mentality because that's where she's comfortable. And I just, I can't be that. I had to be a better mom for my son. Right. And Congratulations not, for that. That's a choice. Well, you don't know. And what, your work. You don't mm-hmm. know what you're doing is right mm-hmm. or not because no one's given an instruction manual on being a parent. But a year ago, my son and I were outside in the garage and he said something to me because he knows what my relationship was with my parents. It's not that I, I don't love them. I don't hate them. I'm just indifferent. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. There's no bond. It's just indifference. And he said to me, he goes, Mom, I hope my children never look at me the way you look at grandma and grandpa. Wow. And I said, son, you don't have to worry about that. Your kids adore the hell out of you. Mm -hmm. You are a damn good father. Mm -hmm. And that's attributed to the fact that he's not had a relationship with his father since, you know, two and a half years old. Mm -hmm. And that I was practice for my first husband because as the marriages and relationships came after me, he became more and more violent. And he even beat the second wife enough for her to miscarry twins. Mm. And here's the worst part. We had a funeral of a friend, right? We all knew this guy. He died. He was, what, 23, 24? Was going to be the next Hollywood big actor, but he died. And we all went to the funeral. His second, his second wife was missing from this funeral, and she was a good friend of his. And he looked at me the entire time of the funeral, kept staring at me, and it felt creepy. Mm-hmm. And he followed me out to the parking lot. And he touch my arm and I'm just like this is just sick and I'm like well where's your wife and he didn't say anything and then he started talking about wanting to go out and having lunch with me and I'm like get the fuck away from me dude he beat the shit out of her and locked her in a closet to come to that funeral to Mm -hmm. come flirt with his ex-wife me Mm -hmm. I mean I'm just like and over the years you have to develop almost a callus because For several years, this man would still come back in my life and try to start shit with me. 
And it got to the point where I finally had to build that thing in my head. It's fear. It's we're, all fear. We're better now at getting long-term no-contact orders or they're called different things in different states. But when there's been severe violence and then he's violent with other partners, you can get the protection orders like for longer terms. Sometimes you have to get them renewed, which I wish they could just be permanent no-contact yeah. orders. But then it's really difficult if you have to share partnering or parenting your children right you know and how do you do that safely we have places where they can drop the kids off and meet and the victim doesn't have to see her former abuser or different things you know we're getting better at it but there's never full ter- wraparound protection the only one that can cr- control the abuse is the abuser and again it's we do put it down on the victim like keep yourself safe you know call on time um, I remember one time being stopped and in my patrol car, and everyone's flagging me down. And so I said, what? And they said, there's a car really driving erratically out on the freeway on I-90. And so I was the closest police vehicle I went out. It was actually state patrol's territory, but I went out, and I could see the car hitting the concrete and just swerving really hard. And I could see the female passenger fighting like crazy to get the steering wheel and the driver punching her each time. And I got the car pulled over, got the driver out, and I could see the woman had blood all over her. And he said, it's okay, officer, she's my wife. Oof. And, you know, it was not okay. Yeah. So when I got him in handcuffs in the back of my car, the woman is screaming the whole time, I'm not his wife, I'm not his wife. And he had been an ex-husband, and she had not been able to get a protection order. And I don't know if it was because it was a racial profiling and she didn't get the assistance she deserved. But he was standing outside her house, and she called the police, and she said, he's standing right across the street. And they said, that, but that's not breaking the law. Call us when he breaks into the house. So by the time I got there, he'd kidnapped her, put her in the car, and was taking her out past Issaquah to the woods. He had a spot where he was going to kill her. But his comment was, it's okay, officer, it's my wife. Like, would that actually work? It's pathetic if it's worked for him before. Thank you for saving her life. <laughs> well, I love her. I mean, I, and I've never seen her after our court date. But it's just thank you for all the citizens that were concerned with, you know, her, her trying to drive. She said, I thought if I wrecked the car, the firefighters would come or yeah. something. But it's just the citizens got involved. I mean, you know, and so, but... It, it's okay, officer. It's my wife. I'll never forget yeah. that. So, you know, think about that and back to the accountability. You know, and another officer came along of the state patrol and stopped to help and didn't like the fact I was a female cop, so drove off and refused to help. So there's on all levels we're talking about the same yes. type of, of dynamics. So it's awareness, it's accountability, it's resources. We have to have people, the first time they make that call, they have everything they need to make the best choice for themselves, the safest choice for themselves and their kids. And then going on through the court system or the relearning system or the, you know, I want to get better, I never want to hit my partner again system. There has to be accountability. There has to be, you know, sometimes no second chances if they have no willingness to change. You know, we have career criminals because we keep allowing them out of jail to commit the crime again. But people that are legitimate, as you met with some of your clients, you know, let's have those resources out there. Let's track it. Let's keep on top of it. And let's demand, you know, again, respect across the board. Because I think when we do that, when we start having resources like this, 
maybe we get to a point where we avoid the deaths, when we avoid the the murders or the or the deep violent acts, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're probably not going to be able to prevent it all. We're not going to no. be able to prevent a certain amount of no, because Control a lot, a lot and, of people don't even call and talk to anybody about it. They keep it a secret. But I mean, a lot of it too, some of it becomes ne- uh, nebulous. I mean, it becomes hard to define like control. Control becomes a, a concept right. hard to define. Right, right, right. 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 It, it's fluid. It's fluid and, and, and it's a subject to interpretation. And there's exactly. no way an officer is going to, you know, you're not going to be able to show up and say, he doesn't like me wearing this skirt, mm-hmm. right? Okay, right. that's yeah, not right. a crime. Right. That may or may not be evidence mm-hmm. of control, right? Mm-hmm. It may, mm-hmm. you know. It has to be a pattern. Yeah. So going back to what Robin said earlier about, you know, you could protect yourself. And so the, it became, if a woman was fighting back, and she assaulted the husband, then she was arrested for domestic violence. And then we had to start looking at primary aggressor. So, you know, it's learning. It's like with COVID, we're learning every day because it's brand new. As we started looking at domestic violence cases and across the board, we were learning and we're trying our best and making mistakes and learning from those. But instead of uh, arresting whoever we saw hit the other, because sometimes it was absolutely self-defense, but still within the law, that was hitting a partner. So we started looking at primary aggressor, and that allowed us to look at the totality of the situation, like what has been happening historically. Is there a lot of, you can wear this, you can't wear that. Is there, you know, the the violence in all the different spectrums, the continuums we talked about. What's the relative size? What's the relative, you know, history? And then we could arrest the primary aggressor. In certain situations, they'd arrest both of them. It's really hard to prosecute a case like that. And so we really started trying to get better at who is the long-term victim here, who needs the most support. And again, how do we do the accountability? How do we get the resources there that both of them need and, you know, protect, let it be a safe but accountable process? And you're right. And I guess the question becomes, too, is that fair to have an officer make that assessment, is that, I mean... Oh, in the moment, it's probably the best we can do in that moment. Yeah, because when we talk about same-sex couples as right. well, and, mm-hmm. and Robin's right, one of the the most prominent instances of domestic violence that stands out to me that wasn't involved in somebody's death was was two men. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you... Uh, who, <laughs> why one... You know, I remember looking at the police report wondering... Mm-hmm. Why was this guy arrested and, versus this guy? But the right? judge can reverse that. Yeah, you know I, I, that's why we have the court of law. Yeah, and then they get more facts. We we only have what you see when you walk into the room and what everyone's telling you. And you take the statement, you try and get them apart long to get each one statement, and you know who's lying the best and who's got the most to lose, or you know. But you make one arrest, and then you hope later it can get sorted out. But the idea is to get back to that. Neither one of them are violent. Neither one of yeah. them. Uh, are abusing the other on any one of the continuums. But, you know, I like to live in la-la land in the future in my brain. <laughs> but And I always think we've made great strides. And then I turn around and think, oh, my gosh, we've got so far to go still. We yeah. do. We do. And, and the biggest thing is I tell everybody back when this first happened to me, you're talking 86, 87, and I was calling the cops. But the few times that they came to the house – Everything was quiet. There were no bruises. There was no blood. Right. You couldn't, they couldn't interfere because they couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. And he said, if there's ever a time where he hits you, where there's physical marks or it's going on, get a hold of us. Well, how the hell am I supposed to get a hold of a phone when he's beating the shit out of me or sexually attacking me like mm-hmm. he normally did? I mean, I, 
I didn't understand what was going on at the time. And I didn't know that there were things like orders of protection. And a lot of people say, if I put this out on that, it's not going to stop them. And I look at it this way. I've told many people in my advocacy, look, I understand that this piece of paper may aggravate them and make them do even more. But you better have this piece of paper to protect your ass just in case he does show up, because at least you can call the police and say, hey, guess what? I have an order of protection and he's here. And sometimes they have the arrest warrant attached with it. It's like so easy to get that done. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to get one done because, you know, when I married him, I was one month before my 18th birthday. My parents signed off on it. Mm -hmm. And even at this point, when we were going through getting ready to get divorced, when he walked out on me, uh, I'll never forget the court because I made him file for the divorce because I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the judge is wanting me to pay him child support or spousal support. I'm mm-hmm. like, what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. This is what's going on. Right. And they eventually arrested him for no front license plate. He didn't show up to court for this front license plate and he had a warrant. Mm-hmm. But he also was 4D status, which meant he wasn't paying child support. He sold everything he owned for a dollar to his friends. Right. To avoid paying the $126 a month in That's child support. not uncommon. And they hauled him in. Mm-hmm. I had to go to court because of this. I was in and out of court because of, I didn't try to go after him because I knew I wasn't going to get it and it was wasting my time. I had mm-hmm. to work five jobs. Mm-hmm. So he threatened me in open court and I'm grateful he did that because mm-hmm. he, he said to me, you know, when they were going to put him back in because he didn't have money to pay current on his child support, they started pulling him back into the back and he goes you fucking bitch i'm gonna get out of here and i'm gonna fucking kill you mm. and then immediately they hauled him and made him sit down the mm-hmm. bailiff I mean, it was like the coolest thing in the world just to watch that bailiff manhandle him and put his ass down mm-hmm. and the judge issued an order of protection right there in right. a court because that was the first time he actually openly threatened me in right. front of anybody and he was dumb enough to do it in front of a judge which was great it, it was for the result but what we that was part of our reasoning when we set up the order so the SOC program was we wanted the victim to be in court to hear the judge tell the perpetrator this is unacceptable behavior this is you know if you're convicted it, it, it's a criminal charge you will be held accountable and it's the first time the, the victim felt there was someone more powerful than her husband mm-hmm. and or the, her abuser, whoever that person was. And it was really psychologically important to her. But we didn't, in the beginning, have all the resources she needed. And we still don't. You yeah. know, sadly, we still don't. And I think that the poorer you are, the least resources you have, the more dire that situation is. And so you're, you know, I think we almost make them stay in those abusive relationships if we don't support their their leaving their their housing their food their job training or you know just childcare so they can go back to work or you know each one has their own needs and we would you think in a country like this we would have the resources to be able to help with that we just don't have all the jigsaw puzzle pieces together yet well yeah we have the resources we just don't choose to put them in that direction mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, because right. we see mm-hmm. You know, so many that are economically trapped, right? We talk about mm-hmm. control, and the one thing that hasn't come up today until you brought it up is really that economic Absolutely. control, right? Yes. If mm-hmm. if um, you're talking about a stay-at-home mom who's not drawn mm-hmm. a paycheck and a husband who monitors the, the, the wallet, so to or speak, Or the right? other part of that, Kirk, and you must have come across it in your law cases, 
So many of the perpetrators get the victims to shoplift or do check fraud or to get hooked on drugs or to drug run the drugs. Or so, prostitute themselves. Absolutely. So now yeah. they have a criminal record, and then that's held against them as well. And so then, you know, how do you support them through that? Because now they have a record as they're trying to get into the workforce. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of those things that, you know, I don't think it was as... as there was that much forethought to it. I don't think the guy saying, I, I want her to do it so she gets a criminal record so I have more control. That becomes the result. Mm-hmm. But I think the forethought is that they are, and the, and the women maybe don't recognize this, especially it, it happens most prominently, I think, in drugs. I saw mm-hmm. it most often in drugs, is that they don't really care. Mm-hmm. They don't really, the, 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 their victim is a disposable commodity. entity to Absolutely. them, right? It's a disposable mm-hmm. commodity to Absolutely. them. And I think. That is true, not just in the world where the guy's a drug dealer or or mm-hmm. once you know you write false checks or whatever mm-hmm. commit mm-hmm. crime whatever um it, was, it makes me think of uh orange is the new black the woman yes. she mm-hmm. she was running drugs you mm-hmm. know for a partner right, right. so mm-hmm. um go ahead and that sort of thing is so common, and it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily come to mind when people think about domestic violence. The other part of that is a lot of women get um, alcohol or drug addicted to anesthetize their pain. They're self-medicating. Mm-hmm. So then we jump on them for being drinking too much or drugging too much or you know not being a good mother. So we're really quick to judge them without figuring out yes. what the Don't whole system is. Don't listen to her, Your Honor. She's a drunk or Absolutely. she's been in and out of rehab yeah. four or five times. And right. that becomes an instrument of control that's mm-hmm. even more powerful than physical violence, right? Because it's... Mm-hmm. It, it shuts off other avenues. Without doubt. Yeah. And, and again, it comes down to resourcing for safety, allowing you know an accountability. But I just wish we get back to borderline respect across the board on every level and demand it in every situation. Well, you know, like I said in the beginning, I wish there were mm-hmm. magical words that could, mm-hmm. could wave a wand and mm-hmm. do that because, you know, when we talk about this respect, when we talk about putting an end to the relationships and those abusive relationships... The way I see it is finding the way, and whatever key that is, to get the perpetrator of those relationships to stop and seek intervention before it escalates into something, right? And from when it moves to something unhealthy to something criminal, because mm-hmm. lives can really be destroyed on both sides, and, and with on both sides of the coin, and. There's not as much sympathy, certainly, for the victimizer mm-hmm. than there is the victim. But like I say, when I think about every time I've commented on Brian Laundrie and he's on the run and everything else, I think the regret that he must be sitting with during those times and how easily that could have changed. I hope every abuser has regret. Yeah, and, and I, I think, think many if they do. Have, I think if they have regret, there's a chance for those to choose to heal or choose to root to before change. they cross the line though because mm-hmm, we can't mm-hmm. say oh brian laundry but regrets. most of them yeah. will not cross the line in my experience until they have been arrested and they have a lot to lose yeah until they have something to lose rather you know not just their wife or family they have to have a lot to lose before they will do that and i think that's the lesson in things like that though when we talk mm-hmm. about you know, when I opened, I talked about the sensational nature of, of the Arias trial, which had domestic violence. And I talk about, you know, Gabby Petito was, was you couldn't turn on the TV mm-hmm. for more than five minutes without hearing about her. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? But this is a high-profile case where now the focus is on the manhunt. 
and it gets away from the relationship and how these two could have found a way, and mostly him, to separate mm-hmm. from that situation. Mm-hmm. Because you think, wouldn't it be so much better if we didn't know either one of their names? Right. right. And I can tell you there are thousands and thousands of names we do not know. Right. And those are the ones I also worry about because they won't have the resources. They won't make the headlines. You know, why don't we care about them just as much? Because their challenges are, you know, I'm a privileged white girl. I would have more resources than many of my sisters that, you know, are not of this ethnicity or middle class or whatever. And those are the ones that really need more resources, more attention. They need their names in the paper. They need us to care about them as well. What I'm wondering is why haven't we instituted this in our school system? If I had, I mean, back when I look back at my time in school, junior high, high school, I remember in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, they took you into the gym, they separated the boys and the girls, and they showed us, you know, the reproductory system and what to expect as a young lady. My mother never talked about that, first of all. So these are things we should be talking about, not only at home, But I think there should be something, at least when I look back on my life and what I went through, why weren't these things being discussed in school? Why aren't these things being discussed in a school atmosphere? I mean, we talk about bodily functions Mm -hmm. and what to expect. Why can we we look at the brouhaha when you talk about having a sex education program? But just I wanted to say that some schools are. We started talking in the United Kingdom we were putting into the high schools uh, healthy dating, and we were talking to the girls, and the boys were out binging on the door and being what sounds like obnoxious. And I went out and I said, excuse me, and they said, why aren't we in there? We want to learn too. So we asked the girls, is it okay to do this co-ed, or would you like to do it boys one room, girls the other? And they said, let's do it co-ed. And there were some really nitty-gritty discussions about what respect meant to the females versus what respect meant to the boys, and then we started talking about again abuse dress uh, is humor. Humor is abuse dressed up in comfortable clothes. Yeah, and we started talking about the terms and the songs and you know that type of thing. And and I agree with you, Robin. We need that across the board. And Not I bet it was very impactful. I imagine it would be absolutely. So then some wanted to do it and segregated, but then after we did the class with just the females and the males, they wanted to, to have the class together. And the dialogue is like from the gut. And as kids are, they're just so right there in every moment. And I loved it. And it was, we learned a lot as well, but we don't have that in every school. And it, we should. Whether it's curriculum, like some school districts control the curriculum. They don't do extracurriculums, you know, yeah. events in many schools because of budgets and things. But yeah, we're losing a lot of opportunities. And so how do we go back and create this? So Drew, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, Crescenti, is one of the amazing men I met when we were doing some training in, in the United Kingdom. And his daughter at 16 was killed by a boyfriend. And, and it was horrific, obviously, as any losing any child right. under any circumstance. But he started the Jennifer Ann movement. I think that's what it's called. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Um, but one of the things he's doing is with high schools is having them do uh, talk about these issues. But he also challenged kids to come up with a video game that incorporated healthy dating, healthy thing. And he did a competition, first locally, and now it's national, and I think it's gone international. 
So all the kids have to look at what is healthy dating, what is respectful, what is this type of thing, and create a game of it. And then they get like the winner, the runner-up, and all of that. But they all get to know what the others are working on, but it's all about positive. And I really wish a lot more of our dialogue in everyday life was the positive. In the, so when we did a lot of the training, we had the power and control wheel. We had all those different training wheels. And finally, someone said, wait, let's do the wheel of respect. And they came out with what respect looks like. And, and on each of those, like, um, you know, the isolation, it's inclusion. The, and, and, they, and I thought, wow, we should be using positive words because the words we use have huge amount of power. Mm-hmm. And instead of living in the negative, let's start putting those over into the positive. Yeah. And so yeah, I'd encourage anyone out there that's interested to look at the Wheel of Respect online. And then that's what we're aiming for with those that want to not victimize or those that want to recognize what it is to have a healthy relationship. And then each and every one of us choose each moment. In this moment, I'm going to make the choice for respect. I'm going to make the choice for you know, embracing dignity, for loving you or at least valuing you. And I'm not going to cause any harm. Every moment we can each make that decision, and I think, Kirk, that will make the difference. And, I, Glenn, I think you're right. I mean, I think it goes to a lot a lot of different things. And one of it begins with loving ourselves before we can really love someone else Absolutely. and not wanting those consequences. And, you know, Absolutely. Um, as we finish up today, I was just advised here that the remains in the in the Florida swamp were that of Brian Laundrie. You're serious? Yeah. Wow. And I think about that and I think about this show and what I said in the beginning about words aren't going to change it and probably nothing that we said today is going to necessarily stop domestic if if we only had such a wand right. Oh man I've been looking for it yeah. But but when we think about the tragedy of these two young people, right? I mean, 23 and 22, one obviously more tragic than the other, is we have to think when we're in these relationships, when we're living our lives like this, is this how we want them to end? Mm -hmm. Is this the future we want, be it jail, be it anything else? So, you know, to the people out there that are being abusive, stop. Get help. Before you wind up in my office, before you wind up in prison, before you wind up, not in my office anymore, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> before you wind up in some attorney's office. Take responsibility be- Before for you mm-hmm. are hiding and, you know, before dying you in a Florida swamp. Before yeah. you take your own life. Before yeah. you take the life of somebody else's because ultimately you're going to regret it. And both you and the person you're in a relationship with deserve that. And if there's anything that can echo today, it's that. It's just stop stand back and understand what no matter what side of the equation you're on that you deserve better and my final thought on this show today is i want you to understand that you are not alone i understand the pain that's involved in this and i know how difficult it is to talk about it i know that sometimes someone may not hear you whether it's your parents or whoever but i'm going to tell you this I don't care if that one person doesn't want to listen to you. Keep talking about it. Go to somebody. Go to a counselor. Go to your teachers. I had a beautiful teacher in high school, and I thank God for her because if I hadn't had her to talk about, I wasn't or talk to, I wasn't sure I was going to make it through something. So 
for me, it was my home ec teacher in my senior year, Ann Brodine, because she understood what it was like to be that person, not really having the parental units that would listen, that silence my voice. So I'm going to tell you, if you're in that type of situation, as Kirk said, you need, if you're the person who is having those issues with your anger, get help. You don't have to end up in a bad situation. You can get help. Things can change. Your temper can change. Everything, every day is a fresh new day to start. Every day is a different day to begin something different. You can be better. You can be the better version of yourself than you were before. And if you're one of those kids who grew up in an abusive household, you don't have to carry that on. You can change and make things better moving forward. Don't allow that kind of shit to keep you prisoner. And if you're a person that's in the other side, that's being victimized, I can't stress this enough. Keep talking to people about it. Don't hide it. You have everybody to talk to, teachers, friends, ministers, whatever you need to do. You can even call the domestic violence hotline. And do you have that number for us? I do. It's 1-800-799-7233. Or 1-800-799-SAFE. And you can even go to their website as well. Absolutely, yeah. And Glenna, as you wrap up, we tie the bow on your uh, first foray into podcasting. (laughs) Do you have anything you'd like to to say as we thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise with us here today? Thank you, Robin, and thank you, Kirk, for having me here. And I do really hope that for everyone out there that's listening, you will seek help whether you're on the you know, offending end or the victim end. And again, Robin, as you say, we do not have to repeat the patterns that are uncomfortable in our childhood. We do not have to stay in abusive relationships. Learn to recognize abuse on every level, not just the physical. And if you're not allowed to be yourself and um, make your own decisions and know what your wants, needs, and desires are, check to see if you're in an abusive, oppressive relationship and seek help. Again, more challenging when you have some of the extra parameters as culture, religion, some of those other things. But every aspect of our communities are opening up to offer resources. And I like when you said, Robin, keep talking, keep asking, keep seeking. Yeah, you have to. That's the bottom line. (sighs) Well, guys, as always, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.